Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the desperate state of refugees fleeing war, strife, and climate disruption, as well as the response of governments around the world that espouse liberal platitudes of humanitarianism while hardening their borders against those seeking refuge. Clips today are from The Real Story, The Daily Show, Democracy Now!, The Takeaway, Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast, and This Is Hell, with an additional members-only clip from This Is Hell. And we begin today with a look at European policies from just before the invasion of Ukraine was on the radar. First to Michael Gala. He's a German MEP for the country's governing CDU party and the spokesperson for foreign affairs for the centre-right EPP group within the European Parliament. I asked him what he thinks should be done with the migrants currently stranded just outside the EU's border. We still should demand from the regime to send these people back. I mean, we should, of course, not forget these people are also human beings in the cold with women and children involved. So uh, we should see to it that the supply could happen also through aid across the border from the Polish side or Lithuanian Latvian uh, side. But uh, given the sort of the Polish response, the militarization of that response, How does that reflect on EU values and the EU's projection of itself as a liberal humanitarian organisation? Indeed, that uh, does affect uh, this image, and that is one of the intentions of the regime. Lukashenko thinks he is a win-win situation. Either the EU doesn't live up to its own standards with regard to humanitarian issues, uh, and then he succeeds in um, blaming us, or we accept uh, the refugee, the, these migrants over our border, and then he creates this pull factor and thereby divides us again over this question how we should uh, deal with it and how to redistribute these people, perhaps. I mean, we should not allow that. Uh, it is very clear that these people there, they are instrumentalized by the regime uh, for the purpose of dividing us and uh, getting us into trouble. And uh, and those people who have paid thousands of dollars or euros for their trip also, they are not the poorest and the most stupid ones. I think they knew the risk that they would be taking. So in, to an extent, they also have uh, a responsibility uh, to bear the situation. And uh, I think what we could offer is for all those who agree to escape the situation to be transported back through the European Union to where they are coming from. I think that is what we could offer, but definitely not a situation where they have the option to stay and thereby create the pull factor uh, for others to come. The thoughts of Michael Gala, a German member of the European Parliament. Now, we can talk about the wider question of migration in a moment, but on the specific question of what's happening on the border of Belarus, Gerald Knaus, is this a sort of political act that is exploiting the fact that Europe can't decide what it wants to do and how it's going to do it? Well, I think that is a very common cliche. And I think what we see now is that we should question it. Europe is united at the moment. It is just united around the policy that is in violation of its own laws. What we've seen in recent years has not been uh, Europeans who couldn't agree with each other. It's been a central political fight between two visions. One vision articulated in 2015 at the height of the Syrians coming in large numbers to Europe in autumn 2015 by Viktor Orban, uh, who had a very clear view. He said at that time, Europeans should do what they are doing now. He said the solution to big mass movements of people is to send soldiers, to build fences, to suspend the right to apply for asylum and to push them back. And what we had the last six years was not some chaotic, confused uh, debate in Brussels. It was a fight where Viktor Orban won over more and more and more governments to his vision. And what we've seen this week is 27 countries backing this vision on the border with Belarus. We are seeing nobody criticizing Poland, which passed a law on the 25th of October, which allows pushbacks. Nobody says this is wrong, although everybody knows it's wrong. The European Court of Justice has given many judgments on this. And nobody says that Poland should let people who are on Polish, on EU territory, it should let them submit an asylum application. 
So no, so the how, EU is how no longer you, divided. How do you set that against the fact that just a few weeks ago, many EU member states, most EU member states, were united against Poland on rule of law issues? Does it suggest then that countries are coalescing around a view on migration, which they will separate from other issues that they may have well, with that country, be it Hungary, be it Poland? Well, that is, of course, part of the strategy of Viktor Orban. What he said in 2015 is that if majorities of the European public, and he was expecting this, would be afraid and would say we need control and the only control you can have is control by suspending human rights and by pushbacks, that then European publics would also accept that universal human rights and liberal principles should go as well. Now, the Polish government is using this refugee crisis and the unity of European governments around this issue to say, listen, yes, we know the European court in Luxembourg, the highest court in the EU, has said that this is not allowed, but we do it anyways. And everybody agrees with us. So it's an attack not just on refugee protection. It's an attack on the very idea of the rule of law. And it is very successful because the European Union is in a trap. It is in a hypocritical position. It blames Poland for not implementing, and it should blame Poland for not implementing decisions by the European Court on the rule of law. At the same time, it is accepting Poland and Hungary and other countries, ignoring decisions by the European Court of Justice when it comes to behavior at the border. Andrew Connolly, it's been described, I think, by Ursula von der Leyen as hybrid warfare. Is that how it appears to you? Look, it's unequivocal that the Belarusian dictatorship is facilitating the movement of asylum seekers. It's a cynical, it's a cruel provocation. It's also true that Poland is trapping those people outside its border and uh, surrounding them with, with barbed wire and troops and preventing them from accessing the asylum system, blocking humanitarian workers, even criminalizing locals from providing the most basic help for those people too, and banning journalists from uh, from observing the whole process. And I think it is precisely because of that panic-stricken, warlike approach that much of Europe is increasingly taking towards a few thousand wretched people on its doorstep means that that is an effective strategy to sow confusion and division. I mean, don't forget that Russia bombed and is still bombing Syria and creating the refugees, some of whom come to Europe. And then at the other end is financing far-right movements in Europe, including political parties, including disinformation campaigns that wage a hate campaign against refugees. So yes, it's true to say that it's a form of hybrid warfare, but it's also the product of real wars. I mean, the narrative that this is not a migration crisis or it's a manufactured one, yes, on the one hand, the physical movement has been accelerated to the EU's doorstep. And sometimes that has been done with an aggressive, coercive smuggling strategy that convinces families to liquidate their assets and go to Europe. But also the issues of, of poverty and conflict in, in Yemen and in, in Syria and Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq, they're pre-existing and they're the factors that push people to move. Too much of this conversation in general, um, it talks about the pull factor of Europe. I think the push factors are much greater. I've met people on the Lithuanian-Belarusian border that objected to their portrayal as weapons or political pawns. These were people from Somalia or Eritrea. Some had family in Europe, some were children. They admit they came legally over the border, but they quite reasonably state, uh, illegally, yes, uh, over the border of Belarus. But of course, they reasonably state their legal avenues to access Europe are slim to none. So when they saw a path open, that meant they could fly to the edge of the EU rather than get in a boat or cross numerous militarized borders in the Balkans, they took it. And the response okay. of the European countries is to issue blanket inadmissible um, decisions on very complex asylum cases, mass detention and pushbacks. By doing this, they've unleashed one of the worst humanitarian crises that Europe has ever seen. This Russian invasion is leading to another emergency unfolding at this hour, the humanitarian crisis just across Ukraine's borders. The United Nations Refugee Agency says at least one million Ukrainians have fled to neighboring countries, and then millions more could soon join them. Tonight, the crush to flee Ukraine. We were in this tunnel at the train station in Lviv. Refugees packed so tightly they could only shuffle forward. 
parents clutching their children's hands. There have got to be a thousand people in this tunnel right now, all of them pushing their way towards the last track here. A railway spokesperson saying every hour, five to 10,000 more people arrive at the Lviv station in western Ukraine. Ukrainians are queuing for up to 20 hours trying to cross the border. Officials say this humanitarian crisis is only going to get worse. This exodus we're seeing from Ukraine is the biggest number of people displaced in Europe in the shortest amount of time since World War II. God damn it, Vladimir Putin. Just imagine, just imagine, one day you're living a normal, peaceful, modern life, and the next day you're trekking to the Romanian border on foot. Just think about that for a second, right? We think the world has ended when our Wi-Fi goes down. These people don't know if they'll ever get to go home. One of the major costs of war is how many people get displaced. They have their lives totally uprooted. Like, we all think war is like Call of Duty. You know, you run in, you shoot, and then you reboot. But for most people, it's more like Oregon Trail. Less exciting, much harder, and way more depressing. And I think we can all agree that it's a bad thing, man. It is a bad thing when anything comes close to World War II levels. Whether it's refugees, fighting, or wastelines, it's always bad. And this is what people forget about war. You know, because sometimes you hear about a war in in another country. You hear about a war in another country and you think, oh, well, that's sad, but it's over there. So why should I care? But you should care. You should care. You know why? Because we're all interconnected in the modern age. Yeah. And that means the fallout of that war spreads all over, whether it's the refugee crisis or the rising gas prices or the stock market, the ripple effects are everywhere. So in a way, Putin didn't just invade Ukraine. He's also invaded your gas tanks, right? He's invaded your grocery bill. He's invaded your social media feeds. Yeah, you just want to scroll and look at thoughts. Now instead, it's thoughts and prayers. But one glimmer of hope, one glimmer of hope for these refugees is that all of Ukraine's neighboring countries are welcoming them with open arms. Ukraine's neighbors welcoming the refugees with open arms, a warm drink and a hug in Moldova. In Slovakia, a chance to watch cartoons. Ukrainians welcomed by Hungarian officials and aid workers. A solidarity ticket, a free seat on another train to the Hungarian capital where more help waits. You've got one European country after another saying that they will fast-track applications for asylum. The European Union is talking about giving them three years of temporary residency so they can work, they can access benefits. In Poland, they have opened their borders open their arms to as many Ukrainian refugees as will arrive. We keep our borders open. The nationals of all countries who suffered from Russian aggression or whose life is at risk can seek shelter in my country. Poland's commissioner to the EU personally offered to host a family of refugees in his own home in Warsaw, but the refugees had found an alternative place to stay. This is amazing, people. All these countries in Europe have stepped up to take in all of these refugees. And what's also amazing is, if I heard correctly, the Polish commissioner to the EU offered to host a family of refugees in his home, but they said, no thanks, we found another place. I don't care what you say, that's gotta hurt. Yeah, you think you're helping refugees and they're like, wow, so is, uh, is that your kitchen? Uh, it's only been eight days, my standards haven't dropped that much. But still, seeing these refugees being greeted with open arms and full hearts, it gives me, it gives me a glimmer of hope in this world, you know? to see like people helping people in need. I mean, it is interesting though that Eastern Europe has been so willing and able to accept a million people coming into their countries in just a few days, when just recently, just recently, they didn't seem to have any space for a different group of refugees. The humanitarian crisis in Europe continues to grow and increasingly expose fault lines, hundreds of thousands of refugees streaming in from Syria and elsewhere. But as the arguing continues, so does the suffering. As Europe struggles for a solution, refugees forced to zigzag from one country to another with no clear path. The EU has effectively paid Turkey to keep Syrians from getting to Greece. Poland had pledged to take in a number of the refugees, saying now that it is not going to do that. We will not be receiving migrants from the Middle East and North Africa in Poland. This is Hungary's solution to the flood of refugees pouring in. A 13-foot fence topped with razor wire. 
running about 115 miles along its border with Serbia. Police in ride gear told they can shoot rubber bullets at anyone who tries to cross. Hostility here in Hungary. Video shocking the world. The Hungarian camera woman kicking that girl as she runs from police. And this, as a man runs by carrying a small child, she trips him and he falls to the ground. Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban had a message for the migrants themselves. The moral human thing is to make clear, please don't come. Hmm. That's really strange. When it's Syrians who are fleeing a war, it's all, we do not have space, do not come. But now this space and people must come, what changed? I mean, when the Syrians needed refuge, even the camera crew was drop kicking families. Yeah, but now Ukrainians are getting accommodation, they're getting visas, they're getting work benefits, which by the way is good, it is a good thing. But I'm just saying, where's their drop kick? And look, we don't even have to speculate. We don't have to speculate about why they're treating Ukrainians so differently than refugees from Africa or from the Middle East. It's because the prime minister of Bulgaria, he came out and said it, right? He said, these are not the refugees we are used to. These people are Europeans. These people are intelligent. They are educated people. Yeah. It's a kind of a shocking thing to say. But at the same time, I will say I'm impressed that the prime minister of Bulgaria has found the time to get to know all one million refugees that have fled Ukraine in the past week. He must be very efficient at making small talk. So where are you from? What you do? What you think? Aha, I like you. And please don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong here. I understand the arguments, right? I understand the arguments that these countries will make, right? That they have to think about how easy it is for refugees to integrate into their culture and society. I get that. I truly get that. It's just like it's easier for you to take in a family member who's in trouble than a random person who needs help. You know, like lots of kids got in one little fight with a couple of guys who were up to no good. But there's a reason Uncle Fool and Aunt Viv only took in Will. I get it. But it doesn't mean it's impossible. It doesn't mean it's impossible. And the problem I have is that when it's Syrians or Africans on a boat, these countries didn't even try to integrate them. They didn't even say women and children only. No, they reject even the chance that anyone brown could assimilate. Your skin is too dark. You couldn't possibly eat borscht. And I know right now, I know right now there's somebody who's like, ah, Trevor, again with the racism. What is it with black people and the racism? Always talking about racism. You know, I go years at a time without even thinking about racism. It's easy. Why don't you try? Well, maybe the reason black people are always talking about racism is because racism is always happening to the black people. And we're seeing it again now in Ukraine. African and Indian students stuck in Ukraine are accusing officials of discriminating against them and pushing them back from getting to the border. This video posted to Twitter reads, watch how they are threatening to shoot us, saying they're at the Ukraine-Poland border. The police and army are refusing to let Africans cross. They only allow Ukrainians. Foreign students who faced segregation and racism at the border crossing to Poland, some say they were told they can't board buses there because they were meant for Ukrainians only. Videos have been posted on social media said to show black people being being prevented from boarding a train and left stranded at a railway station in Lviv as Ukrainians were allowed on. One Congo native saying he was discriminated against while trying to board a train out of Ukraine. They even told us like, we are going to give you guns and you're gonna fight for Ukraine. I said, hi, we gonna fight for Ukraine? We are not Ukrainian, we are black. So how can we fight, how can we fight for Ukraine? Just think about this for a moment, huh? Black people, students, tourists, visitors, many of them are saying they cannot get out of the country. They can't get out because they're black. They just get blocked at the border. And for this guy, I mean, this is wild. Imagine being prevented from leaving the country and not just that, but they say like, no, no, not only can you not leave, you have to grab a gun and fight. That is insane. People from other countries haven't been told that they have to fight. Why does he, huh? The British person gets to go. The African guy, no, no, you're staying. We've watched Beasts of No Nation. We know you guys know how to handle yourselves. This is what you guys do. That's not fair, man. When you go to another country, you don't expect that they might be conscripting you into a war. You just recently returned from Afghanistan. Explain exactly what's happening there and how that relates to U.S. sanctions. What is happening is there's a, a country in 
freefall, economic freefall, which is affecting all aspects of their lives. And particularly on the health situation, um, all salaries stopped being paid on August 15th uh, when the Taliban took over the country. And while there has been some uh, now salaries being paid for basic health care, the hospitals are not being, uh, the salaries are not being paid Healthcare workers are still coming, but there's no medicines, uh, no, no medicines, no heat. And what we're seeing are people can't even afford to get to the hospitals, even if there were medicines to be had. And so talk specifically about the West's approach to the Taliban right now. Right. The the well we were we we call we were told to call them the de facto authorities and um, what has happened in the West is that they have very hard hitting sanctions that do not allow any funds to go to the de facto authorities but in a very broad way and it means that government run hospitals cannot receive money government run schools cannot receive money ministries of health for technocrats they're not able to receive money and so you have a healthcare system, particularly the higher levels, because there are some differences in the lower levels that are not receiving funds whatsoever. Yet these are civil servants, um, just like in the U.S. and other areas that are required to be able to ensure that healthcare services, educational services are running and everything is is um, falling down. And it's not just the sanctions, but it's also a huge issue in terms of the banking system, the central bank, and a massive uh, liquidity problem. So even when we, when I was there and we were paying polio workers and measles workers to try to get vaccines, there was insufficient money in the country to actually pay these people to do their jobs. So in terms of the population, the UN reports Afghanistan's population, nearly 23 million people, are facing extreme hunger, at least a million children are at risk of dying of starvation? Yes. Yes. And, and uh, I would add that it's not—it's the, the crisis is already happening. It's not as if um, we can stave off or we can prevent this from happening. What we need to be able to do is minimize the incredibly negative effects that we're seeing. Um, the, there's been a drought— there's food insecurity, and all of this has been exacerbated due to this economic crisis um, and due to the lack of UN and NGOs being able uh, being able to pay people in the field, particularly anyone related to the de facto authorities, because of the very strong U.S. sanctions. I want to bring Jan Egland into this conversation, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. You have been to Afghanistan scores of times since, what, back to 1996, when you were Deputy Foreign Minister of Norway in Afghanistan. Can you talk about how the situation today compares and what you think needs to happen? Well, there hasn't been this kind of a dramatic collapse in the economy of Afghanistan within within months ever before, I think. Um, the What happened really in, in August when the Taliban took over and the NATO countries went for the door was that they left behind 40 million civilians, the same 40 million civilians whom they have def defended with a with a trillion dollar uh, a, a military campaign over the last 20 years those were left behind the same women and children the same doctors and nurses and teachers and 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 so on so what we've seen um, and I have 1,400 colleagues on the ground. Uh, Norwegian Red, uh, Refugee Council has 1,400 relief workers on the ground. What we see now is that it's not the Taliban that is holding us back. It is the sanctions. It's that there is no banking uh, at all. And that the teachers and nurses and doctors and so on are not being paid because their salaries are sitting in Washington and it's with the World Bank and uh, the U.S. Uh, and all of the other, you know, members of the World Bank are, are not releasing this money. So a lot of things has to happen tomorrow unless we will see epic loss of life.
On Thursday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for a suspension of rules blocking the use of international funding in Afghanistan. Some $9.5 billion in Afghan central bank reserves remain blocked outside the country, mainly here in the United States, in response to Taliban rule since August. Guterres addressed the Taliban also. As I appeal to the international community to step up support for the people of Afghanistan, I make an equally urgent plea to the Taliban leadership to recognize and protect fundamental human rights, and in particular, the rights of women and girls. Across Afghanistan, women and girls are missing from offices and classrooms. A generation of girls is seeing its hopes and dreams shattered. Women scientists, lawyers, and teachers are locked out wasting skills and talents that will benefit the entire country and, indeed, the world. No country can thrive while denying the rights of half of its population. To be clear, he was calling for the lifting of the blocking of the sanctions um, against Afghanistan. Jan Egland, uh, if you can talk about the Taliban and also the U.S. approach. Well, uh, number one, I mean, the, the, the Taliban, we need to actively engage on all levels so that there is gender equality in, in, in Afghanistan, commensurate with that of other I Islamic countries. Uh, we are doing that. I met with the Taliban top leadership at the end of September, this was only a few weeks after they took over, I brought up the need for our female staff to have the same freedom of movement as the male colleagues have. No male guardian should ever be needed to accompany that. And I got a yes and a, and a yes in my meetings in Kabul. And then we have negotiated with the 14 provinces where we operate the same. We have started uh, with sc uh, schools for, for girls and female teachers now in all the 14 provinces, but we have not yet gotten the secondary and tertiary education, and we need to fight for that, really. But it would be the ultimate insult to these girls and their mothers if they have to starve and freeze to death before we are, we are, we are getting uh, through to all of the local uh, Taliban commanders on all of these issues. So that's the message also to, to the U.S. We, we've never held money back from starving people because there has been discrimination from the authorities. I constantly hear the, the, the phrase, not a penny, not a cent to the Taliban. I agree with that. It's not the Taliban that are receiving this funding. It's going through international organizations, the United Nations, the international uh, non-governmental organizations, the local non-governmental organizations, NRC, my own organization, directly to the people. We have full operational freedom at the moment. I've been saying for more than a decade that the sexiest political issue is campaign finance reform, which sounds like a joke, but isn't. If you've been frustrated with the state of our political system and wonder why American democracy seems so unresponsive to the people, campaign finance is your issue. And the new podcast from the Campaign Legal Center called Democracy Decoded is the expert explainer you need. In their six-episode limited series, they're going to take you on a journey delving into the nuts and bolts of our campaign system. They look at the effects of secret spending on both the federal and state level, explore where and how foreign governments are spending to attempt to influence American elections, and investigates the fight against the outsized influence wealthy special interests have on local elections. Now, I'm old enough to remember back when Stephen Colbert was trying to explain the then-new concept of super PACs to his audience on The Colbert Report with the help of campaign finance expert Trevor Potter. So when I heard Potter being interviewed on Democracy Decoded, I said, oh, that's the guy from Colbert. And then I heard that he's actually the founder of the Campaign Legal Center and realized that the show wasn't just smart enough to get Potter's long-respected expertise. The show is a product of his expertise. And that is why I am confident 
that Democracy Decoded is the place to go to learn more about how we can use innovative ideas to build a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Find the show at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Remind us again about the reason it was so important for so many Afghans to flee the country amid the U.S. troop withdrawal. Yeah, so we're talking about combat interpreters who served alongside our troops, embassy personnel um, who supported our diplomats, women's rights activists, NGO workers, journalists, um, other vulnerable minorities. They were our close friends and allies for 20 years. Um, They supported our mission. And many of them were in danger precisely because they championed our shared values. So for these people and their families, there just wasn't ever going to be any safety or future under a Taliban regime. And, you know, we obviously saw that in the fear and the desperation, um, the chaos of the evacuation, families passing babies over barbed wire fences to get them to safety, people clinging to moving aircraft who ultimately fell to their deaths. So for them, they were desperate to get out of the U.S. And it's been incredible. Um, You know, first it was airlifting 124,000 out of Afghanistan and 76,000 were at-risk Afghans who moved to the safety of American soil. Tell me how this settlement process here in the U.S. um, actually works for these families. Yeah, so we call it Operation Allies Welcome. They ultimately arrived at eight military bases here in the U.S. where they were screened, you know, for medical uh, issues, vaccinations. Once they then moved to their final destination, resettlement organizations like Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service help them adjust to life in the U.S. We help them with things like housing, employment, school enrollment. English classes, cultural orientation, and then provide you know basic necessities like clothes and food. Um, really proud to report that there are only a couple hundred left on one of the last military bases, and so they'll leave um, in the next several days. But we know that successful resettlement and integration doesn't happen in a matter of days or weeks. Our new Afghan neighbors are going to need friendship and support for months and years to come. There must be value to resettling in a community where there are other um, members of your of your home nation, where you speak similar languages, where you know one another. Um, So I'm wondering if Operation Allies Welcome was settling families absolutely individually or in communities. Yeah, great question. So the way refugee resettlement traditionally happens is there's actually a number of factors that all go into this complex algorithm of deciding where a family or an individual will ultimately resettle. And two of the most important criteria are, is there a strong, um, you know, concentrated community that could provide a support structure? And or are there U.S. ties? Uh, Because states like California, Texas, uh, Virginia have some strong Afghan communities that have grown over, you know, a number of years. Those are certainly areas where you will see a significant number of new Afghan arrivals. Talk to me a bit about what it's like for Afghan families who are resettling in the U.S. What are some of the biggest challenges they face? The challenges are many. Um, both for refugees themselves and for resettlement organizations caring for them. Um, I've met with families, and in every case, they're coming with almost nothing but the clothes on their backs, trying to start over from scratch in a new country um, after the trauma of losing the only home that they've ever known. Uh, We're talking about people who are expected to build a new life in a new country and oftentimes in a new language. We uh, particularly care for vulnerable groups like new mothers with nursing infants, um, as well as unaccompanied Afghan children. And that's why the resettlement effort is so important, because we can respond to the most urgent needs, but also try to get them on a path to self-reliance. You know, as an organization, we've had to rebuild our capacity almost overnight after the resettlement infrastructure was essentially decimated over, uh, you know, the four years of the previous administration, um, we saw record low refugee missions, which meant that resettlement organizations had to shut down more than 100 local offices nationwide. Um, LIRS ourselves, we had to close 17. So we've had to aggressively rebuild by hiring new staff, opening new locations. Um, For the Afghans, another major challenge has been housing. 
we help these families get a roof over their heads. But we're having to do that amid a nationwide shortage of affordable housing. It's complicated in places like California or Northern Virginia, especially where reasonably priced accommodation has been extremely scarce. I'm wondering about where the other resources come from to to to, to raise these structures, to stand them up um, swiftly enough. Yeah. So there has been an amazing outpouring of community support um, from churches, veterans, volunteers. Just yesterday, um, we received a check from a uh, a, a church um, that said that, that was going to use a $50,000 contribution for a capital campaign to expand the church. And they said, you know, as a result of the pandemic, that's not where we need to put these resources right now. We need to help launch an emergency fund for Afghan families. And then we've also had private partners, Airbnb, um, Uber is another example, as we're trying to get families to doctor's appointments, to meet with their lawyers, to meet with their caseworkers. Uber, for example, has donated um, thousands of rides uh, to help them. Uh, people have stepped up and said, I have a couple bedrooms in my home. Um, can I help? I have a apartment um, that's furnished that's not being used. Could you use it? Um, so it's been really, you know, cobbling together a coalition of support. Do these families have pathways to citizenship or to legal permanent status? Because of the hurried last minute evacuation, the majority of evacuees entered the U.S. on a tenuous legal status called humanitarian parole. What a lot of people don't realize is that status doesn't guarantee they'll be able to stay in the U.S. permanently. It provides temporary relief, essentially allows them to stay for up to two years and to apply for a work permit. But to access permanent legal status to remain in the U.S., they have to apply for asylum. That's a challenging situation because asylum is a high threshold to meet. It requires a significant amount of documentation to establish a credible claim. And for this specific population, that's a potential catch-22. Many of the allies were encouraged to destroy evidence of their affiliation with the U.S. to avoid Taliban detection and retribution. But that same documentation might be a death sentence in Afghanistan. It could actually be the key to winning an asylum case here in the U.S. Not to mention the asylum system is severely backlogged with about 600,000 pending cases. And that's why we're calling on Congress and the administration to pass what we're calling the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would allow Afghans to apply for a more permanent status. Just one last question. What can people who are listening do to assist in their own communities? Yeah, it's an excellent question because this really is an all-hands-on-deck effort. And it's important to realize that resettlement isn't just a sprint, it's a marathon. Um, so we need employers who are open to hiring refugees um, so that they can take those first steps towards self-sufficiency. Uh, we opened a Northern Virginia office um, 20 staff, all 20 are Afghan. And I can tell you as an employer, um, these people, they're talented, they're driven, they're skilled, they're resilient, they're reliable workers. Uh, we need volunteers to help with apartment setups. Um, we need people to serve as English tutors so families can navigate life in a new language. We need folks to drive families to doctor's appointments, cultural orientation, other appointments. And then we need advocates to encourage our elected officials to continue to support um, our Afghan allies. And so there's a number of ways to contribute. Um, and I'd welcome any listeners who are interested in learning more to visit our website at lirs.org to learn more about getting directly involved in this transformative work. I was wondering, as someone inside the bureaucracy itself and as a member of the European Parliament, sort of what the conversation is internally and, and what are the fears of the European Union or what's the sort of self-styled identity of the EU in creating this this fortress? You know, we've just observed um, the um, Holocaust Remembrance Day and one of the lessons that we learned from these uh, mask crimes of um, the um, Nazi dictatorship was that um, everyone can be a refugee and uh, be in need of seeking uh, safety and, and refuge from such terror. And therefore, we have uh, implemented international agreements such as the Geneva Convention, the right of refugees to seek a safe refuge. However, during the time of the Syrian civil war, 
when um, people had to rely on this and did come to Europe, this arrival of refugees changed the public debate in a way that now they were really perceived as a threat and, you know, society couldn't cope uh, completely out of line with the actual numbers and, and facts. But this really prompted a public perception that migrants are a threat. There have been um, some incidents that, that fueled this as well and have been used by right-wing parties. And actually, these authoritarian uh, political movements gained so much support and popularity in the course of this development that also the democratic parties reacted and basically, to a large degree, adopted the same agenda of uh, deterrence and building a fortress in Europe. So that is basically their way of trying to contain right-wing and um, authoritarian parties from taking control. They already have in some countries in, in Eastern Europe, especially in Hungary, but you, you get similar rhetorics from other governments and um, in Poland, the situation is quite similar. And so that's why they, the European Union is pouring enormous amounts of resources and, and money into, into building this uh, fortress. And there is more to it because even before that, especially after uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, there is a general perception of many uh, people in Europe that they are being threatened. I think when it relates to crime and terrorism, these fears are often um, uh, pushed and created by media stories that, of course, like to report on sex and crime. But people get a completely wrong picture uh, and don't realize that we are living as long and, and safe as ever, pretty much, in, in Europe. And uh, crime is really low, also in comparison to historical, to, to past times, but also to other countries. And if you ask more, you, you'll find out usually that it's not people aren't really afraid of, of being a victim of, of crime themselves, but they have a perception that the country in general is in, insecure. But they themselves are more concerned about their economic situation, about uh, the results, effects of globalization. So often the fears are more about social economic um, security, and that is sort of being projected into a, a fear of crime. Also, politicians like to use that and play the, the tough guy uh, who uh, sort of uh, protects people who are being threatened. You know, going against criminals or even other mi minorities and, and migrants is an easy thing to do for a, for a politician and, and to get support for. And that has led to policies where indeed not only travelers are being perceived as a potential risk, so they are starting to, to collect information about our, our travels, our, our plane travels, but they also want to expand it to, to train and ferry travels. They are using algorithms that evaluate the risk that we pose based on patterns that uh, apparently are allegedly sort of indicate a risk that we might constitute a risk if we have certain criteria in common with other perpetrators in the past. And it's not only about travels, but also increasingly the mere existence of a person is seen as a potential threat that required to sort of preventively keep a watch, retain data on their communications and even location. That's the, the communications data retention that you mentioned in your question. And um, that's used to legitimize a kind of general control and surveillance of the population. And that moves our open societies more towards kind of a, a gated community, towards the, the Chinese system, um, maybe even towards a prison system, which you would think is, is, is very safe in prison because it's so controlled, but actually the crime is much higher than it is uh, elsewhere. And so this is the kind of security society that we're dealing with. And there are definitely economic factors with it, as uh, I know I mentioned. So the military uh, industrial complex has adopted to this situation and they are now making a lot of money in the fields of border security, but also internal security. This is big business and this is also driving the supply and demand in this field.
So the report begins the world's wealthiest countries have uh, chosen how they approach global climate action by militarizing their borders. These countries, which are historically the most responsible for the climate crisis, spend more on arming their borders to keep migrants out than on tackling the crisis that forces people from their homes in the first place. So did the wealthiest countries become the wealthiest by being the most responsible for climate change? And do they still benefit from continuing contributing to climate change? Because I'm trying to just trying to find out if there are any disincentives for these countries to stop contributing to climate change. Well, that's what we wanted to look at. We wanted to see whether um, whether the countries that are most responsible historically for climate change. I mean, we've we've got to look at the main countries that have contributed to the crisis that we're in. Um, how are they responding to it and where are they prioritizing their money and their finance? Um, and one of the big promises that came out of the Paris Agreement, which was kind of praised as a historic agreement in 2015, was that the, the richest countries said, we're not only going to reduce our emissions, but we will also uh, support those countries who are really at the brunt end of the crisis. Um, and we're going to support them in two ways. One is to mitigate, as in reduce their emissions, so we're going to provide by technology and refinance to do that. And we're going to help them to adapt to the climate change that's happening. Um, and so there was a promise to mobilize $100 billion a year in finance. And in a sense, you have the richest countries, and this is really the heart of what the crisis is, is that the richest countries who, who have caused the crisis are not the ones who are facing the biggest costs and the poorest, the, mon- the most vulnerable countries who who played no role in the crisis and yet are, are facing all the consequences in sea level rise with islands disappearing, with hurricanes um, and cyclones hitting countries like Bangladesh, which just don't have the infrastructure to cope um, with the costs. And so this is where we wanted to look at really are we, are we responding to that um, with the adequate climate finance? Um, if not, how does that compare with where we are putting money? And we decided to look at borders because in a sense that really crystallizes the issue because one of the big stories um, in, in, in a lot of discussions is that climate change is going to cause migration. Um, it's it's going to cause displacement. So are we helping countries um, deal with that to tackle it themselves or are we just building walls? And unfortunately, the story that, and it's budget speak more than rhetoric, um, where we put our money shows that we spend twice as much the richest countries on, on building borders and immigration enforcement as we do on supporting the poorest countries to cope with the impacts of climate change. Those promises of contributions to fight and mitigate the worst aspects of climate change, those are reported here in the establishment news media in the United States as historic agreements. People were saying that this has been an amazing uh, set of negotiations and that they have actually come to conclusions that will lead to mitigation of climate change. Then those promises go unfulfilled. How much of the problem is the way that the establishment news media covers things like the Paris talks in that they cover the original promises, but they never follow through on seeing if those promises go fulfilled? I think, I think that's a big part of the picture, Chuck. The Kyoto Protocol, for example, said we, we committed to reduce emissions by this much and, and rich countries were to play a bigger role than poorer countries. And um, by the time you had Paris Accord, it was all came down to voluntary contributions. So not only do you have this kind of weakening of, of commitments, it's now a voluntary commitment. And um, we also, on top of that, have broken promises. The richest countries are saying, well, we haven't, okay, we've broken our promise. We haven't produced 100 billion a year, but we're getting closer. We're now at about 80 billion a year. Um, but when people have actually dug into the figures that they see a lot of this money that's been promised is not new money. It's overreported. Um, sometimes it's even bizarrely going towards paying for um, fossil fuel projects. So there's, there's a famous one where Japan has promised climate finance, but it's actually to fund uh, to fund a coal power plant um, in one of the countries. And the reason why they say it's climate friendly is because it's going to be slightly less emissions than a normal coal plant, but it's still very much a, a polluting coal plant. So, so really, we do need a kind of critical analysis of what um, what is below the promises and what's actually been delivered. And, and it's, um, I mean, Oxfam, for example, showed that really the promises are only about, a, a f- actual delivery is only about a fifth of what the, what is promised or, or, and reported as delivered. 
the seven nations that are the wealthiest nations that have contributed the most to climate change, that are also the ones that are uh, securitizing their borders more than more far more than they are addressing climate change, are the United States, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, Australia, and Japan. But what, you know, because this is what everybody is always talking about here in the United States. But what about China? China is producing far more coal than any other nation there and will continue to contribute to climate change. Is, you know, China militarizing its borders? Are countries like, you know, India, which produces the second highest amount of coal, are they securitizing instead of financing the fight against climate change as well? So over time, um, so the most... So in that sense, that's why these, uh, the U.S. has a particular responsibility because it's developed its whole economy and become the richest economy on back of fossil fuel development and has had that role really particularly since, uh, really since the beginning of the 20th century. So it's had a whole century of development based on that. Um, countries like China and India um, are much more recent um, carbon polluters and they're, they're only now starting to kind of develop the, the economies that match the fossil fuel production that they produce. So there's a difference there in terms of historic and current responsibility. Um, and, so, and I think it's important to keep that in mind. You know, China, and the other thing is, of course, people blame China, but China has, um, has a vast population. So if you look at uh, tons per capita, an average American produces about um, 20 tons of um, carbon dioxide. Uh, the average Chinese person now produces about nine. Uh, so there's a difference. That you've got to keep in mind, firstly, the population difference, um, and, 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 that, and that's, that's part of the picture. And, and then they're also just starting to be, uh, they've also got high levels of poverty, which are only now starting to address. So certainly going forward, they have an increasingly important role to play. Um, but up to now, um, really the historic responsibility lies with some of the richest countries like the U.S. Uh, in terms of whether China and India are starting to militarize their borders, there, are, there is evidence that, that is all, that trend is also happening. As countries become more and more wealthy, um, they, that this seems to be a trend that the richest countries then start to, uh, rather than tackle the underlying causes, Elsewhere, they, and and globally, they start to retreat behind walls and play a much more uh, aggressive nationalistic position. And I think we're seeing some trends like that starting to happen in India and China as well. And India now has a has a has an increasingly militarized border against Bangladesh. Um, the question is: Is this a strategy which is either humane or even rational in the long term? Um, and that's that's really what our report was saying: that it makes much more sense for us to be investing money in actually tackling the causes of displacement rather than militarizing the consequences. Um, and, and that's just not a rational position. It's also a, a moral position because the higher and more militarized balls we are building, the higher the death toll that we're seeing. Um, the Mediterranean now has become one of the world's largest med, largest graveyards because European Union is no longer trying to find safe ways to deal with migration and legal ways. Uh, they, they're creating a, an armed border, which means that people are taking more and more risky ways just to try and find a way to survive and to and to live. Uh, and are dying in the process as they as they go through the Mediterranean. So, so this is, in my view, that's a future that it's a very bleak future. If we're going to take that as our main response to climate change, that we're going to just barricade ourselves against the consequences. Ukraine has been urging the United States and NATO to impose a no-fly zone uh, over Ukraine. Uh, uh, President Biden and the Europeans have said that they uh, do not want to do that because they don't want to expand the conflict further. But the media also have been, a lot of the corporate media have been almost pressuring the administration to do so. What's your sense of the uh, of this issue of the no-fly zone and uh, and where members of Congress stand on it? 
So when the Ukrainians ask us to um, implement a no-fly zone, that's an invitation for us to get involved in in the war. Uh, a no-fly zone is not something that you know is just implemented. Uh, it's something that has to be militarily defended, uh, and that ultimately means the United States and our NATO allies uh, will be um, a part and parcel uh, to this to this war. Uh, and when we get involved in in this war, it's not that less. Ukrainians are going to die. More Ukrainians are going to die. And we have to be able to have an honest conversation about what an escalation in this war could ultimately mean, not just for Ukrainians, but for the rest of the world. Uh, and in terms of the sanctions that have already been imposed, you've expressed some concerns uh, about uh, some of the sanctions. Could you talk about that as well? Yeah, I mean, we we are uh, sanction happy um, as 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 a nation, uh, and you know, ultimately, it is important um, for for us to support some sanctions on Putin and his allies to make sure that they feel the pain um, and the consequences of their actions. But what I do want the American people and everyone around the world to understand uh, is that as we urge, um, you know, Russians who are anti-war, uh, that these sanctions that we are uh, cheering for and implementing will ultimately have an impact on the very people that that we want to rise up uh, and uh, make sure that they are speaking against this illegal, immoral and unjust war on a so sovereign country. I wanted to ask you about another tweet. Just one week ago, um, President Biden gave his State of the Union address. Um, <clears throat> you recently tweeted, Thank you, POTUS. I was proud to sign a letter in support of TPS for Ukrainians. I have also signed letters asking for TPS for Cameroonians and Ethiopians. Those deserve the same urgency. Can you talk about the way the media covers Ukraine versus other um, absolute crises in the world. Some have noted that when you're talking about white Christians who are victims, uh, not only Christians, but others in Ukraine, you have a much more sense of urgency than, for example, what's happening uh, in the greatest humanitarian catastrophe in the world, which is in Yemen, uh, not to mention what's happening with refugees from other countries, if you could comment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's heartwarming um, to see the incredible support from European countries, um, the United States and everyone around the world uh, that the Ukrainians are um, uh, experiencing, right, um, as they flee war. Uh, everyone fleeing war deserves this level of compassion and hospitality. Um, some of the countries that are welcoming uh, Ukraine now are the same countries that have um, been stroking fear uh, against refugees uh, who were fleeing the Syrian war, um, the war in, in Libya, uh, and, and many other uh, wars around the world. Um, and it is a, a fact that, you know, many of the Syrian refugees um, were also fleeing Putin's um, brutality uh, as, as he's helped um, Assad's regime um, wage devastation on, on his people. We also know that there are more than two million people that are being displaced in Ethiopia as, as we speak right now. There are people from Haiti, Central America, to Bangladesh, to Afghanistan, uh, and so many other places that are being uh, displaced. Um, and there are more people uh, that, that are uh, considered refugees and immigrants um, in the world right now than at any point in, in our, you know, in world history. Uh, and so, you know, we know that it's going to get worse um, as uh, climate change uh, gets gets worse. And I hope that we uh, seize this um, moment to really start enacting policies that treat all people who are fleeing war and devastation the same way that we are treating Ukrainians at this moment.
We've just heard clips today starting with the real story describing the state of refugee policy in so-called fortress Europe toward the end of last year. The Daily Show described the racism inherent in the response to refugees fleeing Ukraine. Democracy Now! looked at the impact of sanctions on Afghanistan now under Taliban rule. The Takeaway explained the resettlement program for Afghans needing to flee after the U.S. withdrawal. Declarations explained why even left-leaning politicians are helping to build Fortress Europe. This is Hell explored the tension between climate mitigation and border securitization. And Democracy Now! spoke with Ilhan Omar about Ukraine, sanctions, and the ignored refugee crises around the world. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from This is Hell looking at the influential entities profiting from the fear of refugees. Quite a few of the of the big military and, and border spending firms are, have a lot of power within uh, the corridors of power and a lot of influence. Uh, they are lobbying constantly for um, for increased spending on borders. They are raising in climate change as a threat. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... I have to, unfortunately, just sort of paraphrase what Abdul said when he called in. This might have been one of the least listenable, understandable messages I've ever received. The sound quality, you know, the, the connection, the cell phone static was terrible, but I think I could make it out. So listening through the static and maybe even reading between a few lines. I think what Abdul had to say was that, sort of in response to recent episodes on authoritarianism, basically that this gives lie to the whole idea that conservatives are interested in small government. And what is probably more accurate is not that they are opposed to government of whatever size suits their needs— It's democracy that they really have a problem with. They just don't like government that does things they don't like, which is kind of inherent in the whole democratic experiment. So they prefer authoritarianism, strongman leader, who's just going to implement their values without having to deal with anyone else's interests. In the broader liberal echo chamber, the way this usually gets joked about is that conservatives want government to be just small enough to fit into your bedroom to make sure you're not having sex with the wrong kind of person. And the real small government conservatives want the government to be tiny enough to fit inside people's uteruses so that they can make sure that nothing is going on with anyone's pregnancies that those conservative politicians don't agree with. So yes, I, I think that makes sense. For you know years or decades, it's been easy to poke holes in the hypocrisy of conservatives who claim to want small government while wanting the government to get into the most personal decisions a person can possibly make for themselves, their romantic lives, their sexual lives, their medical lives. Conservatives want to get in between all of that. So it's been really easy to point out what they are not, you know, what they claim to be, but clearly are not. But in the last few years, it has become more clear what they are, actually. And unfortunately, the answer seems to be authoritarians. Now, just a couple of quick notes before I go. The first is that there are uh, resource guides on how to help refugees in the show notes for today's episode, so please check those out. And then secondly, another quick reminder about the fact that we have launched a new Best of Left community on Discord. If you don't know what Discord is, I have linked to an article in the show notes that explains it. Basically, Discord is a social media platform that doesn't act like the kind of social media platform we usually talk about because there are no algorithms, no ads working to manipulate your attention, and each area of interest, for instance, best of the left is an area of interest, each 
area of interest is walled off from every other, meaning that if you join our community on Discord, you won't automatically start seeing posts or suggestions from a thousand other similar groups. There's a special link in the show notes that will get you in. Apologies for the link in the previous episode that I know didn't work for some people. That should be fixed now. Completely my fault. The community is open to everyone, but just like with the show, members get a little bit more. Everyone can engage in general chit-chat and discussions of recent episodes and current events, but members have a dedicated area to, among other things, exchange recommendations on podcast episodes, videos, articles, books, films, anything else you could come up with. In fact, at least one recent clip that was in the show came to me by way of a recommendation from a member. So if you're interested in conversations with fellow progressives who listen to the show, getting recommendations on interesting new stuff to check out, and engaging in discussions that will actually help make this show even better than it already is, join us on Discord. If your Best of Left membership is through Patreon, all you need to do is connect your Discord account to your Patreon account, and you'll be automatically added to the Best of Left community. I'll include a link to an article on how to do this in the show notes. If you signed up directly through our website or through Apple Podcasts, look for the link in the show notes of this episode to gain access. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to send them my way to j at bestofleft.com. Of course, questions about Discord or anything else, which you can send in by uh, sending an email to that address or by dialing 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And now, full access to our Discord community, of course. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com